0: SQL Down Under is a podcast for professionals working in the SQL Server community. SQL Server is a trademark of Microsoft Corporation. Opinions expressed during the podcast are individual opinions and may not reflect the opinions of SQL Down Under or of Microsoft Corporation. Introducing Show 55 with guest Aaron Welker. My guest today is Erin Welker. Erin's a BI consultant at Artist Consulting in Dallas, Texas. Her passion is SQL Server BI. She's been working with SQL Server since version 1.11. She served as a data warehouse architect or lead DBA on several large projects for globally recognized companies. She's also presented on SQL Server topics at several conferences and SQL Saturdays and is the author of various white papers, articles and book chapters. On SQL Server and on Data Warehousing. So welcome, Erin.
1: Thank you so much. Glad to be here.
0: Indeed. I haven't uh, managed to see you for, uh, it's probably been a couple of years now at uh, one of the past events or something, but, uh, um, you're working uh, in and around Dallas though and as a consultant.
1: That's, that's correct. I try to stay out of the travel too much.
0: Which is maybe <laughs> but, uh, why we well, haven't been
1: running enough. into each other. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Indeed.
1: Well, good I do well try so to no- make a pass of pass it every year, though.
0: Yeah, look, I try to, and uh, and in fact, again, last year I had a thing came up that sort of stopped me doing that. So, but yeah, but hopefully this year, anyway. The um, what I get everyone to do when they first come on the show is tell us how did you ever come to get involved with this?
1: With this meaning what with SQL Server,
0: or... yeah, with with SQL Server and or BI.
1: Uh well SQL server that's actually so long ago it's almost hard to remember. Hmm. Um I'm old enough to have come from a mainframe environment and we worked with a product called Model 204 and um at the time I was a programmer and I was just fascinated by how the database worked, and I was constantly in the DBA's offices saying, how does this work, and they started telling me about caching and locks and this and that, and I thought, wow, I want to do that. And then the Hmm. opportunity came up, Uh, that's just in PCs, really just starting, and the opportunity came up for a PC DBA, and uh, the platform we were using was SQL Server, thus the version of 1.11. That, mm. uh, that's what we were using at the time, and I was given that opportunity, and I took it, and I haven't looked back.
0: Love Wonderful. it, love it. I do have a copy of 1.1 running on my machine, and I oh. must admit it, it, it is totally fascinating now to sit and look at that and uh, compare where the product is now. Uh, it, it must must feel like quite a journey.
1: Yeah, but, you know, there's actually a few things that are still the same. If you go into SAF and press Control-R, you will still get the results screen toggling back and yeah. forth.
0: So Control-E executes code. You
1: exactly.
0: Know. Mm. Right. And, uh, you yeah, know, it's, it's kind of interesting to work with. But, look, your passion mostly is in the BI area. How did you move into that?
1: Um, well, that's an interesting question, too. It was, I guess it was the mid to late 90s, um, we had the need to um, dynamically, or the users had the need to dynamically query uh, the claims data. And at the time, I think it was something in my head says it was about a 200 meg database, which at the time mm. was was huge, and they needed to be able to query that and and mine it, so to speak, not mining as we think of it now, but ferret through all that data for various things. So Mm. we, uh, as BBAs, gave them an ODS, and uh, they were able to – these were like super users that they were able Mm. to go into the database and just query it real time. And Actually, I should play
0: acronym. I should play acronym police, and so um, ODS should define
1: operational data store, which
0: Very essentially
1: <laughs> is just another copy of your your database. Only um, you can query it without impacting the production OLTP mm-hmm. environment. So yeah. it's a reporting uh, platform, and even though it wasn't Star Schema or anything, I kind of consider that my first step toward BI because we had to deal with all the things we deal with today as far as you know load windows and how do you load a a large amount of data and it's all relative but at the time it was a large amount of data and have it available to the users and dropping indexes and all that stuff uh, I went through back then.
0: Actually an interesting question Um, at the time, you consider that a large amount of data. What do you now consider a large amount of data? Uh.
1: Well, I I like to work with a large amount of data. I can't say that I've had the opportunity to do so recently. I mean, certainly, to me, a large amount of data would be in multiple terabytes.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And of yep. course, so it's, here it's people a relative. working. Yeah, it's I a rel- hear.
2: Yeah, <laughs>
1: <laughs> I hear people working with even more more than that, but to me, that's still that's pretty large.
0: mm It, it certainly. Yeah, I've got clients that have yeah tables up in the sort of six and eight and ten terabyte size, and uh, I must admit it makes you very careful about everything you do with it. <laughs> yeah. So because it just everything takes a long time, and everything takes a long time to undo yeah, if uh, if you do it wrong. Right. Good point. No, it's good. And so, with um, one of the passions that uh, you noted that you have at the moment is BI done right. And so, what I'd love to run through is a number of the things that uh, what characterizes it done right as opposed to done wrong.
1: Well, and you know, I I, I hate to be black and white that this is wrong and this is right. Mm-hmm. But I. When I got into true BI as we know it, one of the very first things I did was pick up the infamous Kimball Data Warehouse Toolkit book, which is uh, at least the very first part of it, and really most of it is not a highly technical book. It's all, first of all, it's vendor agnostic, and uh, there's a lot of emphasis on the front end of business analysis and not gathering requirements in the traditional way that we used to do on an application, Mm. uh, an OLTP application. And that just really uh, that made so much sense to me. And um, when I first started out in BI, I was often the only person at my company who did the the BI. And so I got to do things the way I wanted to do them, And so I, I implemented that right away. Now, I am not a business analyst. I'm much more of a technical person. But I did my best to ask the questions regarding how does the business work? Not what do you want to report on today, but, uh, just how does your business work? What, what would you see yourself doing in five years? This kind of global, futuristic questions that gave me insight mm. into what not only what would be valuable information today but what would be important to them uh, going mm. forward and I since um, seen cases where doing that just just resulted in a much better outcome and, than mm. not doing it and we went to clients, I went to one client, um, and it's it's a company in name that everybody would recognize, and and we went in to tune their ODS. And mm. the more I looked at it, the more I thought, "Gosh, this should be cubified." Yeah. Uh, don't know if that's a word, but you know what I mean. It's just in would mood. be great, slice and dice, and I said, "Well, and that would solve their performance problems as well." And I said, Well, why don't you do that? And they said, Well, we did that and you know, it was great for a month or two and then it just didn't grow with the business questions. I thought, mm. Well, that's somebody who didn't do their front end work to gather the right ask the right questions.
2: Mm.
1: So it's something I've come to feel very adamant about and um I as I went to other companies that had an existing business intelligence um department I see they weren't doing that so I was kind of surprised so I guess I've gotten on my soapbox about
0: mm-hmm. doing
1: B, BI right
0: It's good actually even that book uh, the Kimball one the uh, it's worth noting that there's two versions of that I noticed there's the, the data warehouse toolkit was the original and then there's the Microsoft data warehouse toolkit and I actually prefer the original one, uh, because he spends a whole lot more time on dimensional modeling and things like that in a very vendor agnostic way. Um, where, and the Microsoft one, I thought, oh, that'd be good because he might focus on how that's done with the Microsoft tooling. But sadly, I find that the vast majority of the book, he just spends his time talking about what's different about his uh, the micro, using the Microsoft tooling to the Kimball method. And the, uh, the problem I've had is when I've sort of pointed people at that book is they find like, if they haven't read the Kimball method, then it's kind of really weird reading a book that spends a whole lot of time comparing itself to something else. So, um, but yeah, the original book, I think, had a, a, a really good level of interesting information, uh, around dimensional modeling.
1: And uh, I couldn't agree with you more. And it just, uh the the Microsoft uh toolkit came out uh post 2005 I believe mm. and so it wasn't even available when I was reading reading them and there are yeah. some other modeling books that he's put out I think there's two or three of them and the toolkit I think is it's gone through a second edition and I think I saw that it's soon to put out a third edition I think this summer mm. So, uh, I don't know what the differences are. I didn't get edition two, but I do plan to get edition three. And no, I'm not getting any money from, uh, selling Ralph Kimball books. From Kimball, no, no. (laughs) It's a, it's a, to me, it's the very best place to start if you're going into BI.
0: Mm. Yeah, I I don't think he's broke. So, (laughs) I think it'll (laughs) be okay. Good point. (laughs) (laughs) Indeed. And so listen, with, with modeling uh, and when starting to build dimensional models what, what are the most common mistakes you see with that
1: well i i if i go to a client i will see a fair number of mistakes i guess probably the most common mistake i see is throwing Things into the fact table that probably don't belong there. Um, mm-hmm. I could go down a whole new road with uh, indexing strategies, which uh, that's that's another passion as far as performance tuning and and how I'll see either no indexes or I've actually went into one client where they indexed every single column on the dimension tables. Uh, but as far as um, like a logical modeling, um, I think most people, by the time they get to that point, they they get a pretty good understanding of dimensional dimensional modeling. I think it's somewhere between the logical implementation and the uh, physical implementation that things kind of break down as maybe mm. performance problems are encountered. So, well, maybe let's throw these things in here so that we'll perform better or something. Has that yeah. been your experience?
0: Yeah, look, very much so. And apart from that, so what other sort of things do you tend to see? Have uh, Are you, for example, religious in terms of naming conventions?
1: I try to be, and I'll admit to you that Sometimes that breaks down as as project demands uh, uh, start start coming along. But I I do try. To me, I am not religious regarding what the naming conventions are.
2: Mm-hmm. I
1: try to be adamant as far as once you set the standard, follow it, be consistent. Yeah. So hmm. um, we've been through this those discussions before at various places oh it needs to be this or it needs to be that I'm usually not going to be that adamant um, mm. you know uh, especially when you go in various environments I try to be conscious to the fact that people in that environment might be more comfortable with this type of naming convention but to me it's all about being consistent and I'll, yeah, I'll great, admit I hate to,
0: underscores. Yeah, it's it's great to hear you say that. Actually, the uh, I think one of the marks of someone who is sort of had a maturity in consulting is uh, they usually say is that when you come in the door, you don't want to just simply replace everything the the first time you you walk in the door. The um, I, I think it's a case of even uh, where somebody has a scheme in place. Uh, unless there's like a compelling compelling reason the i mean in general you you need to just try and whatever you build fit in with the scheme that's already there and uh uh because otherwise the outcome after they've had three or four or five people working on things is just such a mess
1: yeah well and i think a lot of that comes from the fact that um i i kind of had two careers i i was at a single organization before I became a consultant, and I was there for 16 years. So I kind of got a feel for, okay, our baby is ugly, but there's a reason for it. You know, uh, various things happened, and I I know what those things are. So I know that uh, most of the people who did the database design and the development were doing the very best they could with what they knew and the tools they had at hand. Uh, so I, I try to think about that as I go into uh, organizations that you know the people there aren't stupid, they aren't lazy for the most part. They're they're trying. They've done the best of their ability. So it's not yeah. that they they don't care. And I he- I yeah. have heard that you know as various consultants go in, oh, they don't know what they're doing.
0: Like,
1: hmm. They're doing the best they can. <laughs>
0: yeah, no, indeed. And and look, I mean, I even see it in, in the SQL Server product. I mean, you, you've you only got to look at like tiny int, small int, int, big int, and then you look at small date time, date time, date time two.
2: <laughs> right. <laughs> you know, it's
0: like, like it it wouldn't have taken Einstein to come up, come up with big date time instead. Now, now, whether or not you like that, I mean... You know, th- that scheme, you know that was the scheme that right. was in place, right? <laughs> and so, yeah, I, I think it's really important to sort of try and fit in with yeah, with what it, whatever is already there. The um, one of the things I'd like to know in terms of how you lay out your dimensions and so on. Uh, I, one of the things that I find when I go in to sites that one of the code smells, shall we say, uh, tends to be a large number of snowflake dimensions, huh. and uh, just. Yeah, I'd love to know your thoughts on that. Well,
1: it's funny you should say that. Um, And I think this came from my DBA, third normal form uh, background. That when I first went into BI, I was big into snowflake schema. Mm
2: -hmm.
1: And I, I read Kimball, and he said, Go star. And here are the reasons. And I thought, yeah, but SQL Server can handle the joins. And as long as you index them well. And what I would do for the user's standpoint is I'd create a view to make it appear like a, snow, a star schema
2: mm-hmm. yep. to
1: simplify it for the users. Now, as time went on, I, I gravitated towards star schema. And now I... Yep. I haven't I can't remember the last time I did a snowflake design. So, yeah. uh again, I think it goes back to um when I was a DBA and and it, was,
2: it,
1: it it just took me a long time to get rid of those tendencies to not be redundant and not and save space and move toward well, this is this is a different world and this mm. just works better
0: yeah i think that that's the key thing is uh, i can always tell when i go into organizations uh if if someone with a very relational background has designed uh the dimensional model and and that they they haven't been doing it very long that's usually one of the telltale signs is uh, yeah. i think a large large number of snowflake uh dimensions
2: that's and so point. I, I
0: presume you tend to uh, flatten them all out. So, I mean, if I had oh, yeah. a, a product in a subcategory and the subcategories in a category, you'd simply flatten those out into a product dimension and then assemble a hierarchy within the product?
1: Correct, yes.
0: Yeah. No, yeah. lovely. How do you make your decisions about what's going to end up in a fact table? Um,
1: well, that's, it, it, that's one of those things that I, it, I, I don't know that it would be easy for me to, to express. It, mm-hmm. I think once you've done something for a while, and I, uh, don't get me wrong, I, I could learn things, but you know, once you've done it for a while, you just kind of do it, you listen, uh, you listen to the users, and even as I'm listening to them, I'm thinking, oh, fact table? Uh, yeah dimension oh, measure uh yeah, that would be a separate fact table, and it just mm-hmm. kind of, i can't say that there's any explicit thought process that goes in my mind it it is almost i hate to presume that it's second nature, but I think it kind of mm-hmm. is. And that's not to say that sometimes when I've implemented something, I don't sometimes look back and go, "Hmm, maybe I should have done that a different way." That still happens, but um, yeah. I I can't I can't say uh, come up with a flow chart and say, "Oh, if this, I put this here." Uh, in general, um, I stay true to traditional fact tables. If I've got foreign. Mm-hmm to uh, surrogate keys in the dimension tables that are meaningless as far as the business goes. They're yep. al- always going to be identity columns except for the date. And mm-hmm. uh, I put measures in there, and every now and then I'll put a reference dimension or say like an order number or something that just yep. makes it easier to, for for me, as often as not, I hate to say it. It just it helps me diagnose. It helps during the ETL.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Uh, I don't do that all the time, but uh, I'm sorry, not a reference. But I meant to say a degenerate.
0: Yeah, is that
1: right? No.
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah, indeed. or yeah. fact-based dimension. Yes, yeah, indeed. Yeah, I so think. So I try um,
1: to stay pure as far as what goes in the fact table.
0: Hmm. Now, in amongst that discussion, uh, you mentioned that you tend to have foreign keys in place. Uh, that's always a topical discussion. One of the things oh. I find so many places I go into, uh, don't have any. And, but when I discuss with them why, they always say, oh, it's a performance thing we can't. But, but I always ask them if they've tested it and they usually haven't.
1: Well, I will tell you, when I say foreign keys, I don't always mean that I've implemented a foreign key within... Actual constraints. Server,
0: mm-hmm. An
1: actual foreign key constraint. And um, I I actually did test that back in the day. Um, unfortunately, sometimes I, I test something and then years go by and I haven't retested it to say, okay, mm. five versions of SQL Server have come out now it's time to retest this and see if this mm. is still the case. So I do
2: yep.
1: – if it's a very large data warehouse, um, I usually will not implement foreign mm-hmm. key constraints within the database. Uh, assume, that's assuming we have a, a very strict formal ETL process in place that is doing mm. that checking beforehand
0: yeah I think that's that's the thing that concerns me i think is the as I said I find often people tend to not put them in at all and and in most places I go into, there might be one or two tables where if you actually tested where it would really make a difference or not um and and even then, in most cases it's it's not all that substantial and uh uh but you know I mean there are some large fact tables where where that's going to happen but but I, I do have a preference to personally putting them in and then up to the point, I like to see them there until I can't see them there. You know, it's kind of what I'm thinking. It, yeah. It's a bit like one of, one of the things I find all the time is that people say, Oh, look, you know, it's coming from a, a system that does the right thing. So, you know, it's checked over in that system. So it must be okay over here too. But, oh. but yeah, the, 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 yeah. <laughs> don't you love it? it? It's the, it's that I love the way you said the uh, formal sort of thing around the ETL because, of course, the thing they never think of is that you might have bugs in the ETL process or things like that. And, uh, yeah, and, and that's where that's not actually necessarily a, a valid argument.
1: Yeah, yeah. Well, and I'm making a mental note to myself that I do want to test it again. And you <laughs> hit something that I I remember way many, 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 many years ago. Someone uh, on the development side. This was back when I was a DBA. Uh, was reviewing a design with uh, a group of us DBAs, and he said, "Why did you?" We asked him, "Why did you design it like this?" He, I believe, he duplicated a column into another table, and he mm. said, "Oh, that's that's so we won't have performance problems." And my thought was, "Why are you?" Des- Thinking ahead of time you're going to have a performance yep. problem and possibly introducing a problem when you haven't even when you don't know you're going to have a performance That's problem right, so yeah. I agree with you that you know best best scenario is to put it in there, and if it does become a huge problem, you can always drop it afterwards so.
0: yeah and another thing that I like nowadays is you can disable them. Uh, constraints and things, and it's nice almost to still have it in the metadata. Yeah. So, so that it would be discoverable, you know, in, uh, if you really wanted to. But, but yeah, look, that, that's one that I find, uh, and the other thing, I suppose, as a corollary to that is that, um, every time they tell me that they don't need that, and then I go and check the data, it's usually wrong. <laughs> Well, yeah. <laughs> so, you know, that, that's the, that's the other aspect of that. And, and what's interesting is that I find the same in transactional systems. People say, Oh, look, I don't need to do that. And, uh, you know, the application does that. And you go, yeah, okay. And then we go and check the data. And of course it, it, it find out, you find out that it's wrong. And, and then you find the particular rows and then they go, Oh, yeah, that's right. There was that bug that we had the other week. And, you know, and, it, you know, there's always a story, um, but invariably it's wrong.
1: It kind of reminds me of the saying, you go into a client to first implement a data warehouse, and they say, oh, our data is clean.
0: Yes, exactly. And I've
1: never, ever found that to be the case. In fact, they are amazed and horrified by what the data warehouse implementation will reveal about their uh, operational data.
0: Because they can see it. They they finally actually get to see the data and and that's the yeah, it hit literally hits them in the face and they they sort of realise that yes this isn't isn't a pretty sight. Yeah. Yeah, no, I find that yeah, it's quite fascinating, but yeah, it's it's a very, very common thing I see. So yeah, as I said I, I love to see scenarios where I put things in place and then you know, if if I get to a point where I cannot have it yeah fair enough you know that that that's that's an argument there um you mentioned also along the way that um, uh, you tend to use surrogate keys as well and uh, mm-hmm. I, I do exactly the same but I'd love to hear you just describe why you do so
1: well uh, that goes back to the uh, one thing I like about um, when I when I was first reading uh the Kimball Data Warehouse Toolkit was that, again, this is me coming from a relational background, so it's all a foreign world. But what he's good at doing is explaining why you do this. And so, again, it all made perfect sense to me that um, you want to remove uh, or abstract, so to speak, um the key of the dimensions from what the business knows, and there's various reasons for that. I mean, certainly if you've got changing dimensions, type two yeah, changing so dimensions specifically. Being able to
0: version a row, you, you obviously have to have a different key to the source. Right, yep.
1: and you could say, oh, I'm designing this dimension, and they don't want type two. Uh, we'll just mm. replace any changes but and what if they change their mind now your design, entire design has to change i'll have to yeah. update all the keys and the fact table uh He also talked about um, if you have uh say you have an employee dimension and an employee in various departments within your organization is keyed differently. One department might key by a Mm -hmm. social security number. Another department might key by uh, what they call an employee ID. And this is a way of saying, okay, you can both reside within the same uh, dimension member, and we've assigned this totally meaningless key that you can look at it either way depending on what department you're from. If you had mm-hmm. a corporate merger where now you've got to bring new information in that their keys are different, uh, then the circuit key abstracts from that. It's from a DBA standpoint, it's usually much smaller so your your indexes are smaller and that's Always good as far as performance and memory utilization, mm. and, and of course, once you put all those into a fact table, which could have millions and billions and trillions of rows, that's going to make those rows narrower.
0: Yeah, yeah. I always think the 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 basic rationale for it, yeah, is the. The idea that even though you might have a source code, uh, source system key, you might have, as you say, multiple source systems is, is a big issue. I think, yeah, the versioning is a, a compelling issue for for doing that. Um, but the other one, yeah, is a performance one where uh, and complexity one where you're taking source systems that have composite keys or multiple columns making up a key. I don't want that through the design of the data warehouse. And so I suppose consistency of the design of the data warehouse is another key aspect of that. Mhm. Yeah. No. Lovely. That's good. Now, uh, one of the other things that I tend to now be a uh, bit of a fan of having in, for example, a fact table, uh, or stored somewhere similarly, is some sort of lineage information. Uh, uh, again, you often look at somebody, you'll look at a result in some, in a in some sort of analysis, and then I say, hang on, I don't believe that number. And I think one of the most important things is being able to identify. Where did that value actually come from? How did it come to be in the data warehouse? And so, what do you tend to do in terms of that sort of thing?
1: Uh, well, I, I, can you give me an example?
0: Uh, One of the things I'll do is if I have some ETL process that runs uh, I might have in some sort of chunk or every time it executes I might give that some sort of number and then I'll record in a oh. separate table something about that and I'll just have the lineage ID, uh, an ID right, itself right, right. in the fact table. Yep.
1: Okay, yeah, I was kind of drawing a blank on, on that. Mm. Um, usually I put uh, some kind of batch indicator uh, and as... As i one reason i went went from being independent back to working with a consulting company is mm. I felt like I was doing all this all by myself and I wanted to uh, learn how other people were doing it so yeah. as I go to various other places um I'm adopting their frameworks, but in the past, all I've done is um as an ETL process runs, uh, each run generates an ETL batch number identifier mm-hmm. that is assigned to any row that it inserts or updates. Yeah. Uh, if, if, uh, it's type 2 slowly changing dimension, uh, attribute is, results in a new row, then the batch ID is assigned to that new row so that I know that's Uh, And then I can go back to uh, the logs from that ETL run and say, okay, this batch ID ran on this date and generated these rows, and that's when the change occurred.
0: Mm, Indeed. What's your thoughts around granularity of data? So how do you decide how fine of data you're going to store?
1: Well, I've... I tend to want to go as, as, I I tend to err on the side of going too low, even Mm -hmm. though I know that will result in more data. Um, But if I hear any hint during the interview with customers that they want to go a little lower than I initially thought, that's what I'll do is I'll go lower because we can always aggregate higher. But you can't yeah. take, uh, something aggregated at a higher level and then try, uh, real time, try to dissect, well, what's the detail behind that?
2: Mm-hmm. And,
1: um, I actually was recently on a project where, uh, that's exactly what happened. They, they, they went to a higher level and the customer came back later and, well, where's all of our detail? Well, you didn't say you yeah. wanted that. And it, Took a while to re- redesign it to go mm. to the next level, so that's not a mistake that uh, is is easy to fix.
0: No, yeah, I must admit, I, I think very much the same. Uh, I think if in doubt, store the lot. <laughs> no doubt, tend tend not to aggregate or assume that. But but again, you know, there there will be some scenarios where it's a problem. I, I've I've uh, seen things like electricity authorities where. You know, they used to get a reading every three months and uh from an electricity meter and put it in a table and then as they change over to smart meters, they're getting a reading every fifteen minutes instead. And uh you know, they've got sort of exponential table growth there and you know, there may come a point where it's just simply impractical for them to do it. But but even there, I I think if with tiered storage and other ways of trying to deal with that, I would really still try and store that if I could.
1: Yeah, and I think what I – still today, um, I think we've both been with SQL Server a long time, and we know that the the old uh reputation was that it was not a platform that could scale well. But I think that perception in many cases, even with the people who are implementing solutions, is still very much true, and we really do have so many tools – available to help us deal with volumes yeah. of data.
0: Yeah, it, so, it does a remarkable job now.
1: So it's kind of going back to what we were talking about earlier, uh, making the assumption that there's going to be a performance problem. It's easier to go lower, and if that does to become a performance problem, there's ways of of mitigating that. Maybe yeah. you partition, maybe you have a summary t- uh, more summary view for uh, longer periods of time, but more recent, you have more of the detail. There's design decisions and technical decisions that you can usually Mm. make to mitigate that.
0: Yeah. Um, One of the things I'd like to get your ideas on, do you... Often discussions about whether your facts ever can be updated or not. Do you tend to come across things with updatable facts or... Or is it once they're facts, they tend to to stay?
1: Well, uh, one would certainly like, I think, that once you have a fact, it stays. And if you have a change, maybe you make an adjustment, say as far as sales go.
2: Mm.
1: But I was actually at a client uh, not very long ago that there was just no way to do it. Um, they were getting um, uh, basically they were a third party that was getting data from clients and the data was just changing. <laughs> yeah. And I'd scratch my head and I'd look at well, maybe I can do it and all I could do is update the facts. And yeah. maybe there was a way to get around that. I certainly couldn't find a way. But if possible, I prefer to to not do that for various mm. reasons.
0: Mm. Yeah, yeah, I must admit, most of the time I, I would prefer some sort of compensating transaction that reverses what was there and puts a new one in but yeah sometimes you just can't do that Uh, again I see people have hard and fast rules on this and I I don't think you can so uh, again I've seen people who have maybe invoices that and maybe they uh, are never able to be updated but but if they do some sort of pro forma invoice Uh, and, and it's a, in a nebulous state itself. It's really, really hard to, to be adamant and say that can't change because, you know, absolutely it can change, you know, so if, if that's the thing you're actually reporting on.
1: Right, right. It's, that's, that's what, what, that's number one, what keeps us in business and keeps life exciting is that, uh, there's no, absolute rules every now and then you gotta make adjustments based on you know Mm. this is how their business works
0: yeah do you tend to have to do a lot uh, i suppose calculations during fact loads the um i suppose uh, i suppose the question is you know if i have a quantity unit price a tax rate a discount percent but i need an extended price do you tend to calculate those and store those in the table
1: um I'll get the infamous "it depends." Answer. Yep. No, no,
0: that's fine. Um, uh,
1: the the one thing I will say I'm adamant about is preserving any information that comes from the source. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, it's it's quite possible I might do some calculations uh, when actually storing it in the data warehouse. I might wait until it goes into the cube. A lot of that would depend on how the data was going to be consumed. If it's going to be consumed strictly from the cube, and we know it will never go back to the data warehouse. And as I'm talking, I'm I'm erring on the side of storing it in the data warehouse because yeah. sometimes you just need to go back there. Sometimes you can't consume everything out of the cube, mm. and I I prefer to err on the tube being absolutely consistent.
0: As well as community resources such as this podcast, SQL Down Under offer mentoring services and both private and public training options. If you need to get your project back on track or if you need to get it off to a good start, why not give us a call? We have also recently introduced a series of online courses available in both Asia-Pacific and US-UK time zones. In particular... The first course that's offered in this series is Query Performance Tuning. You'll find details at www.sqldownunder.com. Look, I, it's an interesting point, yeah, when you're talking about, like, I, if, if I have calculations that I could do either in the cube or in the dimensional model underneath, uh, I would tend myself to lean towards always doing it in the thing underneath. And mm-hmm. part, part of the reason I think that way is that, Invariably, if I present something in an analytic model to someone and they drill down into the underlying data, then it's really confusing for them if they can't find it.
1: Correct. And, and I will tell you, it's, uh, it's a rare case in my experience when somebody doesn't ever go back to the underlying model Yeah, that they could strictly consume out of the cube. So... Mm. Um, i uh, I always want to, in that case, have the same information in both sources
0: yeah it's an it's the same argument I tend to try and uh, avoid renaming things terribly much uh inside maybe a data source view in a cube rather than, I would rather try and do it in the underlying model again if I can because again i don 't want to confuse someone who drills down to the underlying data
1: yeah yeah I, good point
0: mm. Indeed, do you get a lot of uh ones where you need to blow out the grains? I mean, we talked about potentially summarizing the data, but pushing it out. So, and, I mean, the most common people usually have is something around budgets. Um But, yeah, things where you need to, maybe you're given the granularity, but you need to actually store perhaps a lower granularity? Uh,
1: You mean in the store, a lower granularity in the data warehouse than in the cube? Yeah. or Yep. Um, so,
0: where somebody gives you a value at one level, but you actually end up storing something lower than what that's provided.
1: Uh, I can't say that I get, I don't know that I've ever gotten that. I'd have to mm-hmm. really search back. It doesn't, certainly doesn't ring a bell. Yep. As something I've okay. done. No,
0: that's good. Now, another, I suppose, part of that, um, in terms of the processing that you have for the ETL work that brings it in, um presume you're mostly working with integration services?
1: Mm-hmm. Yes.
0: Excellent. And how do you make a decision, in your case, if you're getting performance-related questions, between doing things as T-SQL statements yes. as opposed to doing them as uh, steps and transformations within the uh, in integration services package itself?
1: Well, uh, I hate to say it, but again, I'm going to lean back on the, well, I kind of just like to think in the most part, for the most part, I know what's going to perform better in SQL Server. I mean, uh, SQL Server, you can't really beat it as far as doing set-based mm-hmm. database operations. So, um things like uh, I'm trying to think of examples uh, for me
0: look at look, lookups are the most common thing where I you know I mean again you could run things through a transformation and do lots of lookups but I would rather have data into a staging table and then just simply run one pass of an update with a whole series of left outer joins and just find all the all the surrogate keys that I can immediately
1: and one thing I tend to uh, lie back on or, or go back to a lot uh, from performance tuning days, is profiler is by far my the most underrated tool. Uh, I said yeah. that I know a lot of people think they uh, use it a lot, but uh, in cases like that, if you implement a lookup in SSIS and run a trace on it, well, you can see right away it's hmm. doing a lookup to the database for every single one of those versus doing it in a database join. Uh, mm. And, of course, you could see it in a uh, elapsed time. <laughs> certainly a lot easier. Yeah. But I'm one of those people that always likes to peer under the covers and see what's going on. So <laughs> nothing mm-hmm. like Profiler yep. to do that.
0: No, it absolutely does. And so, listen, in terms of, uh, apart from lookups and things, I uh, mentioned before, when loading up dimensions, how do you uh do you tend uh in different types of dimensions like with slowly changing dimensions the how do you make your own decisions about what really should be a changing attribute as opposed to historical attributes or like type one type two or or even type zero like a fixed attribute i don't know if you ever come across those of things but but like how do you make uh a judgment as to what things should cause versioning of rows um
1: i don't. And mm-hmm. when I say that, uh, that is to me absolutely a business decision. Now, Good. I well, so I, caveat, geez,
0: I... <laughs>
1: well, I yeah. caveat that with you got to be careful how you frame that to a user because mm-hmm. if you explain it to them, their initial reaction is they want everything to be typed to version everything, and uh, that's that's always kind of something. Uh, that could be challenging. But again, it's kind of like the grain question. It's better to err on the side of having too much historical information mm. than not having enough. So when in doubt, I will make it uh, a type two, uh, yeah. meaning I, I know it changed on this date, and it used to be this, and now it's that.
0: Yeah. Listen, one thing that people are always horribly critical of, of course, is the slowly changing dimension wizard, uh that's <laughs> yeah. contained inside integration services. Um I'm just wondering how you implement your slowly changing dimensions.
1: Um I usually uh you, know, you mentioned earlier uh the staging table. I usually do get it into SQL server and take care of things there. I have used the slowly changing dimension wizard in the past, usually only when the dimension is very, very small. Yeah. Um, Or sometimes I've used it as kind of a starting point, you know, generate Mm. these tasks for me, and then I'll deal with it from there. But um, my preferred approach of late is to go ahead and get the SQL Server and take care of it there. Yeah. Yeah, it's
0: interesting to hear say that. And in, uh, in terms of uh, other ones I do see people using is there, there is the one up at CodePlex, the, uh, the Kimball SCD one that, or the Merge SCD component, they call it, um, where, basically was a community effort and it's certainly dramatically better than the the one that's in the product and I note the guys from Pragmatic Works are kind of looking after that and then have their commercial version of that as well but the uh it it certainly uh, is head and shoulders above the one in the box but but yeah the vast majority of that work I I have a strong preference for doing in T-SQL where, wherever possible the um what about inferring members as well do you uh, tend to um, do a, deal a lot with inferred members?
1: No, really, uh, not. I'm trying to think if I, uh, the last time I've done that, I, I really don't. Mm.
0: Yeah, it, it, it is one I tend to use quite a bit actually, because I find that, uh, I, I try and design the ETL process so that no matter what order you loaded anything in, you try and end up with basically the same outcome. Mm-hmm. Um, where we're typically, uh, I think, um, yeah, I try and load dimensions and load the facts and so on, but, uh, uh, the world is never quite perfect. And, uh,
1: yeah, that's <laughs> and, true. uh and, and,
0: and the systems that the data comes from are not always a hundred percent good either. And so you get the whole issue about, you know, so, you know, if I do have a sale arrive and I look up the product and there is no such product, the question is, what do I do next?
1: Wow. I, I, gosh, I've tried, well, I do, yeah, okay, uh, I do do that on occasion as far as, just, mm. uh, what I usually have, I either usually throw it as, uh, an exception, yep. or, uh, put it into a, uh, you know, a, an un- unknown member bucket, mm. yep.
0: Um yeah but and not necessarily divert the row yeah i suppose the i see people take different approaches with this so yeah. the the first up as i said if i get a sale in and i i have no such product when i look it up the i see some people will push all the rows off to one side now i, I to deal with now a i i think that's bad because the problem is if it was a a lookup in one dimension failed i mean it now means analysis by any dimension does doesn't have the data um and so so i think that's nasty and you've got to go back and sort of deal with it somehow the second approach i see people take is where they'll remap everything to an unknown or something like that and the concern I have with that one, even though the analysis is fine, is that invariably later the real thing turns up, uh, the, the product that should have been there in the first mm. place. And then you've got to go, how do I know which ones I mapped off to the unknown one to, to map them back and so on? And it's hard to regain that, that sort of initial state. So I think it is kind of nice that if I have a, a sale comes in for a product and I have no such product, I would tend to infer that there must have been a product uh, and then basically fill in what I can about it and, and set a flag that says, hey, this thing was inferred in the first place so that at least when the real thing turns up, I can then just overwrite that and turn it into the correct one. So, but, but I do have a strong preference for trying to make it so that I can run things in whatever order I, I can.
1: And, and there so, are certain i uh, I've got a couple of of, of responses to that because there are hmm. certain things uh over the years I've done things in various ways and learned lessons as I hope we all have hmm. so i'll agree absolutely agree with you um, on the exceptions because unfortunately you think okay the users are going to come back and we will going to work we're going to work through this exception pile and we'll hmm. get it back into the fact table and invariably that never happens so yeah. um, well though that's a well meaning way of dealing with yeah. it, it, it but it's
0: it, not going to happen typically
1: <laughs> it's not worked well in my experience even because no. I've tried it <laughs> yeah. um, so the question is um, uh, one of the my prior clients, the data was so bad. Let's take the state column, which mm. should be an absolute um, set of, of values. Well, they would have yep. who knows? Because again, sometimes the data is not even coming from your client, but from some external source. Mm. So, do you create a, a a a member for each one of those, or or is that a, a it, it, I guess it depends, but...
0: Um... Yeah, and of course that, that is the downside, is that if, if I have data that is really poor quality coming in, I don't want to end up sort of creating members for all of these values that are actually invalid values. So that's the second thing, is that I think you have to have some sort of monitoring so that you know that this is happening. Um, because, because yeah, otherwise, I mean, you could just silently hide the fact that the data is nonsense yeah yeah and until somebody starts looking at the analysis and yeah it, it's a real challenge but uh but i think it um it does concern me where i see uh in a perfectly strict world where everything happens in the right order i'd actually rather see it just go bang during the etl and then fix it and then continue on right i mean I, sure, i'd actually yeah. prefer that the um but i think yeah, sometimes it yeah try and have something a little more flexible than that but if you do you then have to have some way of monitoring it yeah because yeah it does trouble me that you could go off and just sort of create a whole lot of things that uh, uh that's going to be another mess to to deal with instead uh, even though you're trying to do the right thing so yeah no i th- i think there are challenges there it's a bit like um i had a friend that um uh i remember spent the entire weekend loading up data using old dts years at many many moons back and uh-huh. uh he thought he had uh his dates in australian date format he had them in us date format and he didn't get a single error, right, on the entire load. Uh What DTS and VB and a lot of those languages used to do is that if you converted something to a date, it, it would just take it if it was fine, but if the month and day were around the wrong way, it would just silently swap them around for you. Um, but, of course, in his case, it was actually the other way around, and so what would happen is he ended up with two-thirds of his dates with the month and day around the wrong way, you know and and cuz this is sort of silently fixing it for him um oh, wow. on, on the way and of course then you don't notice it straight away it's like two or three days into production people start saying hang on that's not when that happened <laughs> you know and then of course then trying to work out okay so which dates are real and which are not after people have worked on it for a few days you know it's like wow you know and i compare that to if he was given a choice between that and at the fourth row of the initial load it just went bang uh, let me tell you take the, take it going bang every time
1: yeah yeah i i i agree
0: the um another one in terms of the lookups now you were sort of uh i just wonder if you ever have used any of the fuzzy components that are in there
1: I have not. I played with mm. them when they initially came out just to get a feel, but um, uh, most of my, I guess maybe they need to rename them. Mm, <laughs>
2: no,
1: yeah. no, nobody likes this idea sometimes of a fuzzy lookup. Um, mm. But, uh, yeah, in most my experience has just been that uh, we want it to be an exact match.
0: Mm.
1: uh I, I can so I I can certainly one of the challenges, see the scenario but yeah that's just right never I think, used them.
0: yeah, where they were sort of heading, I suppose is trying to help with things like deduplication, and I think that's that is a really, really difficult problem and uh and so, in the organizations you're working with, is deduplication a challenge uh it has been I'm trying to mm. uh, i,
1: I I know it has. I'm trying to think back to the last time I dealt with that. Um, mm-hmm. For for the most, even uh, even the last place I spent a very long time at, they at least had some some keys or some some primary keys on their source system to prevent Mm. that from happening. But I I think there was still a a place where I encountered that.
0: Yeah, I think I was thinking more higher level of the data. The the sort of challenge, I mean, a good example is that so many organizations every month will send me four and five copies of the same newsletter or the same whatever. um, They simply can't work out that I'm one person. (laughs) yeah oh i see what you're saying yes mm yeah and uh, and i just sort of yeah the approaches i think uh, some of those transformations are useful slightly as one step in trying to help resolve some of those things uh, and so maybe i've got data um that doesn't match up and I'm trying to find things that could possibly uh, be related to it. But but yeah, it, I suppose my message is that they're, they're not an end in themselves. They might be one tiny little component in how you have to deal with a bigger problem.
1: Well, and I'll, I'll admit, again, this kind of goes back, uh, when you encounter something back early in your career that's been problematic, I, I find that I tend to to kind of go back to that uh my first career was at a hospital uh system and that was absolutely mm. a problem where you have a patient who's in there 10 20 times and i actually worked on a patient consolidation and we worked and worked and worked uh to find up with find that combination of things We used phonetic searches and ultimately it was so horrific the thought of potentially combining two patients that were in fact not the same. That That's right, it's erred, so scary. <laughs> yeah, that we erred way on the other side and we ultimately, uh, I believe what we did is we presented a, an application to the, um, to the business user that says, we think These two people are, in fact, the same person. You decide. Mm. (laughs) You consolidate them.
0: (laughs) Yeah, I think that's a challenge in a lot of organizations. There are humans there who can do quite a good job of that. Um, But usually I find they can't explain what they just did. So, you know, they might look at two sets of, say, patient details, and they'll immediately apply an enormous number of little algorithms in their head to decide whether it's the same. But they could never tell you what they just did.
1: Yeah, I love the way you put that. That yeah, and I guess uh, one would like to think that's the reason why we'll as humans never be replaced completely. But uh, yeah. maybe we're just kidding ourselves.
0: <laughs> Actually, one one approach I did see that had me totally fascinated. I was at, uh, got to go to Tech Fest uh, a couple of years back. It's an internal Microsoft event where. Uh, they get the people from Microsoft research and they put them in the conference center and in little booths and they get the people from the product group and they sort of mix them all together and, uh, it, it's, uh, it's an interesting thing because, uh, the people who are in the booths are not used to, I mean, a lot of these people, I mean, sorry to be harsh, but are like, researchers who normally live almost in a cupboard and slide the pizza <laughs> under the door type people they they're not used to being in a in a conference booth sort of thing and uh and it, you could just see that they felt very a lot of them felt very uncomfortable being there but it was fascinating to watch because uh the product group people had come in and say look you know why don't you try this and this and and then conversely they'd be going heck i could use that you know that that looks really interesting and uh but one that had me totally fascinated is there was a guy there who was using spreadsheets uh, to build integration services packages and for deduplication. And what he was doing is he had two sets of details about a customer side by side, and then he'd get a human to go through and go, yes, no, yes, no, and so on down the list. And then when the human had finished, he would actually read that in and spit out a package that would have come up with the same answer.
1: Wow.
0: And I thought that that was an insanely interesting approach as to sort of like a direction for maybe doing some of these things where, you know, I think this is an interesting idea, the idea that you might be able to have some sort of human training and, of course, the absolute magic is in how do you then turn that into a package? but But the idea that you could then, you know, if you found something it got wrong, could just add another couple of rows, tick and cross, and then regenerate the package, that's a fascinating sort of direction to sort of head down, I thought.
1: Yeah, yeah. Well and part of it, my brain's kinda of gone off into another direction of uh potentially using data mining to mm. to say, okay, they consolidated these two, but they didn't consolidate these two. What's the difference? And yeah, why
0: is that? Yeah.
1: Yeah, What? So what, I, I what think,
0: yeah, as I said, what, I, I think whole deduplication area it's an it's an intractably difficult problem for a lot of people uh, i think if if uh, any of the listeners you know have an interest in trying to find themselves an interesting little career there is you know if you can make inroads, <laughs> inroads into some of that uh it is such a global problem it's it's, it's amazing
1: you heard it from greg low you're, you're going to launch <laughs> a whole new profession
0: <laughs> and great well, listen that's getting up towards time Aaron. but the um Where will people come across you or see you, or what have you got coming up?
1: Well, I've um, I don't don't plan any travel anytime soon. Mm -hmm. I do hope to to go to the past summit in Charlotte in October.
0: Yeah, so Um, change of venue this year. So instead of uh, in Seattle, we're off to off to Charlotte.
1: Yeah, I I I am past likes to mix it up every every now and then. I mean there's obviously a very good reason for holding it in Seattle as often mm. as they do, but um it it helps some people geographically to go to another part of the country yep. uh, I'm not sure what it does to you. is
0: it oh, better look, or uh, worse? It's actually probably slightly worse but not not That's not, not a really big deal uh the um I mean by the time what's we another LA... couple of
1: hours, huh? <laughs> yeah.
0: We hit LA. Whether I go north to Seattle or across to Charlotte, is, is not really the the end of the world either way. Uh, it's it's a, a relatively short flight, no matter where it is compared to where we've just come from. So, the um, and look, uh, when it used to move around a lot, uh, one of the things I did like is it was really actually interesting seeing the different cities. The uh, uh, like uh, I had a ball. I must. Uh, even like in Denver, for example, when the mm-hmm. summit was there, uh, uh, I still very much recollect the the big blue bear standing at the front of the. I was uh, the, as soon as you said her, that.
1: That was my first image.
0: <laughs> yeah, it, it's just it's wonderful getting to see all these places. And uh yeah, I think so. That was kind of good, but I totally get the the whole Seattle thing too because it is so valuable to have a large number of the microsoft staff there and uh and of course in seattle that, that's where that's going to happen so the uh uh so yeah it, it is a complete trade-off but yes I, I think a mixture of the two is interesting it, it is interesting to get around the country as well but for me that's more just simply as an outsider coming in and just getting to see more of the country
1: yeah and i i assume when you come you combine various uh uh trips to to make it a little bit longer so that you can
0: oh look yeah sometimes the case but yeah i must admit uh yeah i do have times when i've, I've gone over just for two days or something and uh, that's wow not really like two days my hat or... is off to you <laughs> <laughs> no, yes, I've yeah, had some really, really long days, and uh, it, it's funny, uh, some of the length of some of the flights we do sometimes, uh, what's worse is sometimes we start in the wrong city. So uh, I remember having to go to Alicante in Spain one day and starting in Canberra, and uh, <laughs> it's just like horrible, because I had to sort of fly from like Canberra to Melbourne to Hong Kong to London to Madrid to Alicante. It was like, wow, you know, is this day ever going to end, <laughs> you know, so it was, yeah, no, that that does happen a bit, but yeah, it, it is a long way to go just for yeah things like two day events or things like that. So it's, it's a mighty big trip. But yeah, yeah no, as yeah, it's, it's great. As I said, it is a wonderful thing to get together, and I encourage people if they haven't been to one of the summits. I, I think it is uh, oh well, it's clearly the, the the main SQL Server event that happens in the year, and just uh, it's a wonderful chance to get to meet just just about anybody really.
1: Yeah, we. I think we could probably both go off the deep end when talking about the SQL Server community. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's no community like it as far as uh, – it's the only one I've been involved with, but to talk to other people, it, it's just a special community to be a part of. So uh, that's where we yeah. get to meet up and with we'll- all of our friends.
0: Another one that struck me this week, too, just as a final note on the the SQL Server things, too, is uh, I had to do some work with DB2 last week again. And, you know, for all the criticism that I hear people make of documentation and things and stuff like that in the SQL Server, we have it so good. (laughs) You know, we just have it so very, very good uh, compared to what I see in other products.
1: Yeah, well, it's been so long again since I've worked with another product that, uh, I guess you forget how good you have it until you go somewhere else, huh?
0: I mean, navigating around like I had to download some OLEDB providers. I mean, an interesting challenge, you know. Go and try and find the OLEDB providers on the the IBM site, and try and find them on the Microsoft site. And uh, uh, l- let me tell you, there there is no comparison in terms of what's involved in in uh, in both of those uh, exercises. Wow. It's just amazing. Yeah, so, yeah, so look, I, I think shout out to the, uh, all the guys on the, the who do the documentation work. The, it, it's a kind of an unsung sort of hero type thing, a lot of that. And, and yeah, there are issues and things, but overall, I've not struck another product that has the, the level of quality of documentation that is actually there for SQL Server.
1: Well, and I think, uh, too, uh, the community, uh, the community, um, con- contribution as well. Uh, but to me, of course I, been, having been around for so long, that I remember the day that the only thing I had to rely upon was, uh, not SQL Books Online, because they didn't have them, but just the hardbound documentation, which I'm sure if yeah. they were to print that off now, would, <laughs> I can't imagine how much space it would take. But, um we have so many good contributors out there that are are willing to share the things that they've learned with, with the rest of us. So I, I can't remember the last time I had a question that I couldn't get easily answered just, just by going yep. out there.
0: Magic. Well, listen, thanks so very much for your time today, Erin. That's wonderful.
1: Absolutely. I've so thoroughly enjoyed it.
0: That's good. And I'll look forward to seeing you again soon. Okay. Thanks.